Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. That was the entertainment part of the speech. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. First, I want to start off by just uh, recognizing and thanking a few people who have made this, made this trip possible. Um, first, General Mosley. Thank you very much for coming, sir. I know you've come a long way from, from Europe and time to be here today, and I hope I don't let you down. Um, second, Ross and Sarah, thank you very much for your unbelievable and generous hospitality. Um, I, I don't know Dallas without being involved with you, and to me, you are a big part of me being here every single time, so thank you very, very much. Matt, I know you came especially a long way to be here today, and uh, for those of you who don't know Matt Bird, he is part of the Hillwood team and works closely with Ross, but he's recently moved to Abu Dhabi. I'm not sure if that's Ross's initiative or uh, Matt is running away, but I think, I think Matt has now found a second home in Abu Dhabi, and I'm very happy that he's part of the team and still a close friend, and the trip would not be the same if you weren't here, so thank you for coming back. And last but not least, the glue that holds this trip together, Marjorie Adams, who has literally done everything on this trip from the smallest minute detail to uh, arranging the guest list and preparing everything for us, so thank you very, very much, Marjorie. I, this trip would not be possible without your help. Thank you. And with that, I want to also thank Pat Murray. Pat, um, my understanding is your last speaker was General Petraeus. Now, I'm not sure how you figure out your speakers, but I think you need to have a talk with them because there's absolutely no way I should be following General Petraeus. And with that, I want to thank you all for hosting me. And uh, let me start by saying that I just came back to the U.S. a few days ago uh, after being at home for two weeks in Abu Dhabi. And candidly, as a true child of the desert, I was a bit nervous about returning to Washington when I heard about the three feet of snow. <laughs> I, I grew up in Cairo and Abu Dhabi, and you can imagine we didn't get a lot of snow days off, and so <laughs> I was actually looking forward to coming to Dallas, which is, should be significantly warmer, only I found out you guys had a foot of snow here a few weeks ago too, so from now on I'm checking my own travel arrangements myself. But I want to thank you all for personally having me here, and uh, it's great to be back in Dallas. This is one of the few places in the U.S that we have so many commercial, personal connections to Abu Dhabi and the UAE. I see many friends out here today, and your presence and support is deeply, deeply appreciated. In the same spirit, Governor Perry and his delegation visited the UAE in the spring of 07, during which he pursued new economic development opportunities for Texas and the UAE. We were honored to host the governor, and we're eager to welcome more delegations from the great state of Texas. As the governor knows, the UAE offers a tremendous market for Texas. Already, Texas is the second largest exporter to the UAE among all states. Although we are only the 52nd biggest economy in the world, we are the 15th top export market for Texas goods. Just here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, corporate powerhouses like ExxonMobil, Hensley, Hillwood, and Lockheed Martin are significant exporters and partners. 
Dallas-based architectural firm HKS recently opened an office in Abu Dhabi and is working on hotel and hospital projects across my country. The law offices of Baker Botts will be officially opening an office in Abu Dhabi soon, and Aiken Gum just established offices in Abu Dhabi earlier a few months ago. These Texas companies and thousands more across the U.S. have been part of UAE's economic development success. Ours is a story of rapid economic diversification and the opportunities and challenges that small economies face in an increasingly competitive and globalized world. To understand our economy today and our government's commitment to diversification and to social development, you need to understand a little bit about our history. And with, by that, I mean the period before oil. The late Sheikh Zayed, the founder of the UAE, once said, he who does not know his past cannot make the best of his present and future, for it's from the past that we learn. Less than a half a century ago, the area we now call the UAE did not produce a single barrel of oil and actually relied on imports to meet its modest hydrocarbon needs. The principal source of income back then was the pearl diving industry. At the time, local divers would collect pearls from the shallow waters of the Gulf. These rare and coveted pearls were sold to jewelry manufacturers who would then distribute them to buyers all across Europe and the US. But in 1916, the bottom fell out of the UAE pearl diving industry. And it wasn't shifting consumer tastes or global economic catastrophe, but rather technological innovation. Someone simply figured out how to make a better and cheaper pearl. And in 1916, half a world away from the UAE, a Japanese entrepreneur patented a new technology for the development of cultured pearls. By 1935, there were 30, 350 pearl farms in Japan alone, producing over 10 million cultured pearls per year at a lower price and with more consistent color and shape than the Gulf pearls. Japanese cultured pearls soon dominated the global market, and the UAE pearl industry collapsed, and thus began a rapid and painful economic decline that continue, continued well into the 60s. It was only then that oil changed everything. The poverty of the 30s, 40s, 50s is not something most Western audiences often associate with the UAE, but for many of our older generation, it's something that remains fresh in their minds. There's a well-known story about Sheikh Zayed from uh, a 1953 visit when he went to Britain and France, and he was vastly overwhelmed by the quality of schools and hospitals and so on. Recalling his trips many years later, he said, I was dreaming about our land catching up with the modern world, but I wasn't able to do anything about it because I didn't have the wherewithal in my hands to achieve these dreams. I was sure, however, that one day they would become true. And Sheikh Zayed was right. When the UAE was given another chance to prosperity, it grasped it with the knowledge and conviction of a, willing, of a people unwilling to relive a painful past. Previous generations learned the hard way that a heavy reliance on a single resource makes your economy prone to volatile shifts in demand and to unexpected technological developments. I think you might be able to see where I'm going with this. The parallels between the oil industry and the pearl industry are unavoidable. As folks in Texas can often certainly appreciate, it's no secret that the oil sector can easily be impacted by sudden shifts in demand, the development of new game-changing technologies, and looking ahead, the potential acceleration of climate change. If that happens, we do not want our economy to grind to a halt again. The lessons of the crash of the pearl market have provided the will to diversify our nation's sources of income away from an over-reliance on oil or any other single industry. 
During the 1970s and 80s, with the availability of the oil revenue, the UAE's drive toward a more diversified economy began with the improvement of our physical infrastructure. We built roads, power plants, seaports, airports, water systems, and telecommunication systems. Today, I proudly, we boast one of the most advanced levels of infrastructure development in the world. Equally as important, beginning in the 1970s, the Abu Dhabi government built a financial infrastructure with the creation of the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority. IDEA began with a clear and simple mandate, to invest all surplus oil revenues. The genius of the IDEA model, which you are now reaping the benefits of, was that it created a significant stream of returns that was neither exposed to nor depended on oil price or local market conditions. In fact, in good years, our investment returns surpasses oil revenues. In the 21st century, the UAE is pursuing an even more aggressive and sophisticated phase of economic diversification involving four main elements. First, continued investment in the hydrocarbon sector, not just to expand production of oil and gas, but to enable the production of higher value hydrocarbon products such as petrochemicals and plastics. Second, the establishment of government-owned investment organizations that move beyond just the passive investments that sovereign wealth funds continue in into acquiring international companies and launching new enterprises. Third, the deliberate outsizing of industry. And by that, I mean establishing industrial capacity well beyond just domestic needs, specifically for export-oriented purposes in industries such as aluminum smeltering, aerospace manufacturing, and logistics hubs and airlines. And finally, the fourth element of UAE's current phase of diversification is the establishment of strategic international partnerships with leading global companies which include GE, AMD, ConocoPhillips, Airbus, Rolls-Royce, Ferrari, ExxonMobil, and the Carlyle Group. Through these various diversification strategies, we are now seeking to use our resource wealth wisely in order to establish a more sustainable model for the future of our country and our economy. The UAE now is the second largest economy of the Arab world, despite of having a population of only six million, roughly the fourth of the population of Texas. It's no small thing considering how far we've come in barely 40 years of existence. Our pearl industry may be long gone, but our economic future has never been more secure. And in a great irony of economic history, we now sell more oil to Japan than any other country in the world. That revenue allows us the luxury to afford a few Japanese pearls and still have something left over to purchase some goods and services <laughs> from other countries, including the United States, which is one of our largest export partners. So our economic diversification is not only good news for the Japanese, who have a reliable and secure energy supplier, and the UAE, which have, generates revenues, but it's equally great news for the United States, where we buy an enormous amount of goods and services and invest a great deal of our money. And just on a, a side note, I think one of the pieces of information that usually go unnoticed is almost all of our oil gets produced and exported east to Japan, to Korea, and countries in Asia, and not a single drop of oil gets sold to the west. So there's actually no UAE oil going to the United States. When people re, uh, mention the U.S. The dependence on, on oil, Arab oil, it's not coming from the UAE. Hmm. We are now the U.S.'s largest export market in the Middle East and the 19th largest export market for the U.S. globally, ahead of Spain, Ireland, and Indonesia. The UAE purchased over $12 billion worth of U.S. goods in 2009, and currently more than 750 U.S. firms have a presence in our country. 
from Starbucks to ExxonMobil, and from Bechtel to Krispy Kreme. Beyond these impressive statistics, so three aspects of our bilateral economic relationship are worth mentioning. First, I just mentioned ExxonMobil, and as you're probably aware, they are not only the Texas, they are not the only Texas-based company that has reaped the benefits of the long-standing, robust, robust, and still growing collaboration in the oil and gas industry between your state and my country. World-class corporations such as ConocoPhillips, Halliburton, Baker Hughes, and Farmers Branch Selenese uh, have also forged commercial relationships with the UAE public and private entities. As we continue to diversify our economy, these significant commercial relationships serve as building blocks for further collaboration in different fields, such as renewable energy, aeronautics, between the UAE and the Texas companies. And second, in some cases, our economic relationship partnerships signal a deeper collaboration between our two countries. Take Lockheed Martin, for example. Not far from here, a plant that I visited yesterday for the second time or third time, uh, their Fort Worth plant, Lockheed Martin produces the F-16s flown by the UAE Air Force. The advanced Block 60 model, which was developed exclusively for the UAE, in a coordinated effort between Lockheed and both governments of the UAE and the US. I was also honored to visit uh, the JSF line last night, which hopefully one day I can come back here and maybe sign a JSF deal, like we did a F-16 deal a few years ago. So this partnership says much about our two countries' deep security cooperation as it does about our strong economic ties. When it comes to Gulf security and the common challenges that we both face in the broader Middle East, the UAE and the United States are steadfast, steadfast allies. We work together to fight terrorism, extremism, in order to promote peace and stability in our region. And General Petraeus, who I understand was recently here, has publicly addressed some of the UAE's defense capabilities and the important role our military and intelligence play in supporting U.S. interests in the region. My government works extremely closely with General Petraeus and the entire national security leadership in Washington, and we look forward to continuing cooperation going forward. As you can see, the Lockheed Martin made F-16s are the result of a valuable business partner, partnership but they also are a testament to the deep trust between our two countries. And finally, it's worth noting that the UAE's approach to international investment has also facilitated a significant flow of capital into the United States, creating thousands of U.S. jobs in the process. Here in Texas, for example, a $150 million investment by Dubai's Emivest in 2008 allowed San Antonio-based Sino Swearingen to continue full-scale production of its SJ-30, the world's fastest, longest-range, and highest-flying light jet. UAE Capital is also financing a new leading-edge semiconductor manufacturing plant in upstate New York, a port and logistics center in South Carolina, and a completion of the huge city-state real estate development in, uh, sorry, city center real estate development in Las Vegas, among many other various examples. But Sheikh Zayed's vision of the UAE catching up to modern countries was not only about economic development. It is also about nurturing what he called the real asset of any advanced nation, its people. Our leadership knew that this meant investing heavily in two things, education and healthcare. And again, during the 70s and 80s, along with the roads and the power plants, the UAE drastically improved its social infrastructure. We began building schools, universities, hospitals, and clinics. We had to catch up fast, and to do that, we had to focus on partnerships with top-class institutions from around the world and many of them here in Texas. For example, New York University is building a 2,000-student campus in Abu Dhabi and is set to welcome its first class of students next fall. 
MIT has been working with Abu Dhabi Future Energy Company to launch the renewable energy-focused Mazdar Institute of Science and Technology. The Paris Sorbonne University opened a campus in Abu Dhabi in 2006. The Guggenheim and the Louvre are each building brand new museums on Abu Dhabi's Saadiyat Island's cultural district. Cleveland Clinic is developing a hospital in Abu Dhabi and already manages and operates the Sheikh Khalifa Medical City, a network of healthcare facilities in the UAE capital. And more importantly, from the Lone Star State, we have the University of Texas MD Anderson's Cancer Center in collaboration with the Susan G. Komen for Foundation for the Cure working along with the U.S. State Department's Middle East Partnership Initiative, is developing programs for UAE women's groups, government officials, physicians, and medical organizations to raise awareness of breast cancer and facilitate more effective outcomes in prevention and in treatment. Methodist International, a subsidiary of Methodist Hospital here in Houston, signed an unprecedented agreement with Dubai-based Amara Healthcare Group to build, operate, and manage its healthcare centers throughout the Middle East, North Africa, and Turkey. And last but not least, the Del Perot systems completely completed the successful rollout of a hospital information system in multiple hospitals and primary health care centers in Abu Dhabi. Thanks to such partnerships and the UAE's government ongoing commitment, today we have first-rate schools, we have first-rate universities, and health care facilities that is, bar none, one of the best in the region. Indeed, all of our accomplishments over the past 30 years we are most proud of our human and our social development in education, literacy, and health. And a few things exemplify the success of this approach better than the progress of Emirati women. Forty years ago, almost no girls went to school. Today, 70%, over 70% of all our graduates from the UAE universities are women, and so is 64% of our government workforce. Four women serve in the cabinet as cabinet-level ministers, and I believe the exact number is 23% of our parliament are females. In October of last year, the first female judge was sworn in. Three women recently received their certification as fighter pilots in the UAE Air Force. And in Dubai, the first class of women were, are being trained as muftis, or Sunni Muslim scholars who interpret Islamic law, a first in the Middle East. So as our economic diversification and social development strategies demonstrate, the UAE has embraced openness with engagement and with the world. Rather than resist globalization, we're implementing policies that we believe will enable us to capitalize on the opportunities of free trade while withstanding the challenges that come from being a relatively small economy in a very competitive international system. One positive side effect of this approach has been a consistent strengthening of ties between the UAE and the United States over the course of the last four decades. And Texas exemplifies the breadth and depth of our bilateral relationship, with collaboration initiatives spanning the business, healthcare, defense, and security arenas. I believe that this, is both been, this has been good for both of our countries, and for Texas in particular. I am confident that our relationship will grow stronger in the years ahead, and I wanted to thank you and the World Affairs Councils in Dallas and Fort Worth for your hospitality and your leadership. I want to thank you for the opportunity for allowing me here to speak and let you know a little bit about my country and a little bit about our important strategic bilateral relationship. And more importantly, I look forward to hosting all of you soon in the UAE so you can enjoy the great warmth and spirit of Arab hospitality and some good weather. Thank you very, very much.
ambassadors agreed to take some questions, and so uh, we have roving mics on each side of the room. If you would approach the mics, and uh, we will then uh, recognize you uh, as as you raise your hand, and then uh, they'll bring the mic to you. And we'll start over here on this uh, very far side. Thank you, Your Excellency. We're we're pleased to have you here, and and I run Rosewood Hotel, so we're pleased to have you in our hotel here. Um, we are also doing a project in Abu Dhabi, uh, immediately adjacent to your Cooper Clinic, as well as one in Dubai. My question to you is this. Uh, both of our projects are in the financial, the international financial centers. Um, there seems to be a healthy competition between Dubai and Abu Dhabi. My question is, how is, is that a healthy competition? Is that a coordinated effort to each country develop their own pockets of, of commerce and focus on areas. How does the relationship between Dubai and Abu Dhabi work to the benefit of the, of the UAE? Um, it's a very good question. And there's been a lot of media speculation and analysis that says Abu Dhabi and Dubai are not getting along. Abu Dhabi and Dubai are very different. The first thing I would say is Abu Dhabi and Dubai are part of the same country. It is one country one economy, one foreign policy, and one voice. So I would, I would urge you to think of the UAE as one country. But having said that, this one country has seven emirates, or as I would like to call them, seven brothers. Um, brothers often compete. Brothers often disagree. But that does not mean that one voice does not prevail at the end. And yes, Abu Dhabi will have a financial district. Dubai already has a financial district. And you know the way we were educated is competition is healthy and competition is friendly. We are not. Abu Dhabi is not trying to take anything away from Dubai, neither is Dubai trying to take anything away from Abu Dhabi. I think together they complement each other quite well. I often describe Abu Dhabi and Dubai kind of like uh, Washington, D.C. and New York. Uh, they're different. They have different mentalities, different feels, but they both work together, and they both complement each other very well. No more questions. We're done, sir. Good afternoon. I was absolutely fascinated by the by the female mufti. Can you just tell us a little bit about how that came to be and how they're being accepted? They came to be in very the same way all our women in leadership came to be. We have 52% of our population are, are women. If we chose to not utilize them, not employ them, not capitalize from them, the best thing we could do would be 48%. So half of our population would be providing no use to the country or to themselves. So I think the spirit of involving females and women in the UAE comes from a very simple policy and from a very, very wise leadership who, who chose this path for them a very long time ago. Um, I, I think, I don't know how they're being accepted yet because they haven't actually been operational yet. But if the leadership has chosen to make this possible, they will be accepted. Um, and in every single case where women have taken a role, whether it's in parliament or in regular work or in, or in colleges, they have proven themselves. And I can attest to that myself. I've, I've worked with many women in the UAE who have proven themselves not only uh, as very capable and competent, but actually more driven and ambitious than many of the guys. And I know the guys here can attest to that too. Uh, we get distracted very easily. In the UAE, <laughs> in the UAE, the women have they want to prove themselves, and they perform extremely, extremely well. And so I'm confident that once they are actually in service, uh, they're going to impress everyone. 
Your Highness, um, I'm really fascinated by what you had to share with us today. I have two different questions for you. Uh, I'm a father of a four, four and a half year old girl. What opportunities or programs you have for expatriates who are who are planning to move to Abu Dhabi or the UAE or or, or who live there for for little kids or for children? So that's my first question. My second question is very different. Your your great country. What kind of contributions are you guys making for? countries like, you know, places like Haiti, where there's been a lot of problems and things. You know, we talked about trade, we talked about a lot of economic growth, but there are a lot of countries out there which need help. So these are my two questions for you. Can, can you, the first question, can you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah, what kind of programs you have for, there are a lot of people who are trying to move to Abu Dhabi for, for business or expatriates who live there from different countries from the US. Mm -hmm. What kind of programs you have for little kids, children, like four years, five years from a school standpoint, for, for their growth, for their future, and things of that nature. Uh, let me talk a little bit about education in general, and one of the, the very interesting programs that we are, we are halfway through, I believe. Um, a few years ago, we, we did an, uh, an evaluation of our public, public education system, and we found that, unfortunately, it is not at the level that we would have liked it to be. And so the leadership in Abu Dhabi had made a decision to privatize the entire public education sector in Abu Dhabi. So, we are now halfway through converting all public schools into privately run schools. Uh, and so the short answer to your question is any young person in the UAE, whether it's an expat or, or, for, or a national, will have many, many opportunities and many options for them to select which schools their children go to. We have American schools, uh, English, Japanese, believe it or not, we have a Chinese school, French school. Um, the, the, transformation of going from public to private will still allow the UAE to pay for many of the UAE national students to go to school. The only benefit is it's going to be a privately run school and the parent will have a choice of which school he wants to send their children to. Uh, the government will remain in basically the role of a regulator and they will make sure that the curriculums are on par, that the, stu that the teachers are qualified and certified every three years. So the government will get out of the business of running the schools as opposed to just regulating the schools. Uh, the second question, I think the UAE has had a long and rich history of being one of the most generous countries when it comes to um, humanitarian support. Whether it's Haiti, whether it's any crisis anywhere in the world, in Pakistan, Katrina, the UAE is usually one of the first countries to either offer assistance in kind through humanitarian support or cash. Typically, we prefer to offer support. We've uh, sent about, I think, Badr, is it 26, 26 tons? I think about close to $10 million. We've donated to various initiatives here. I think uh, the embassy alone has donated to a concert in Miami really hosted by some, uh, some entertainers to raise money for Haiti. So I, I, the UAE is usually at the forefront of assistance in various kinds and shapes. Um, uh, I can get you more numbers if, if you would like, but we've, we've done quite a bit in Palestine. I think we are the single largest donor to Palestine, uh, Lebanon. We have pledged about $450 million to Afghanistan. We've recently forgiven about $7 billion of debt to Iraq. So uh, we, we, this is definitely a big part of our foreign policy and we'll continue with it as far as, as, far as we can go. Thank you. Mr. Ambassador, how seriously does Abu Dhabi regard Iran's evident uh, effort to achieve a nuclear weapons capability, 
And what are your preferred strategies for dealing with that? There is nothing we see as a graver danger to the region, not just the UAE, than an Iranian nuclear program. Um, and we, we're continuing this discussion from this morning. Um, there is nothing that we view as a higher priority for us than dealing with an Iranian threat. Our, our choices of how to deal with it, I, I stand here before you today and tell you I have no answer of how to deal with it. You know, people usually consult us or ask us, what do you think? I think we're at a point where there is no clear-cut solution. If there was, we would be, you'd be shouting it from the tops of the buildings. But we are now so far down the line with, with a regime, I think, who is determined to get nuclear weapon that the options at our disposal are very limited. So what I would urge is really to have a very serious conversation between the international community and people who are viewing this threat as dangerously or as seriously as we are, and really draw what the red lines are, and really convey to the Iranian regime what it is they are willing and not willing to live to, to live up with. Um, I, think, I think it's time to step up leadership. I, I don't see any really serious leadership on this issue right now. I think we are kind of uh, running around in circles. I, I hope that the UN Security Council really convenes and puts together a sanctions bill that raises the, gets the attention of the Iranian regime. I hope, I, I'm not sure that's going to happen, but I believe it's incumbent on the international community to really address this very quickly and very seriously. Otherwise, not just the region will be in trouble. I believe more and more of the international community will, will start to feel threatened by this by this regime with nuclear power. And you can only, you only need to look at the events in our part of the world to see Iranian intervention in the region before acquiring nuclear weapons. And then you can forecast what it would be like if they actually did get nuclear weapons. Mr. Ambassador, thank you for coming. I want to tell you, uh, when I was in the US Navy years ago, Dubai was our favorite port call in the Middle East. Um, <laughs> It was, it, was, it was also our only poor call in the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that, 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 that actually goes to my question. Uh, I wondered it then, and I, I wonder it now. You know, with, with the evident openness to, to the West and you know, ships coming in and, and doing all this business, what, how, there must be some concern with, uh, with the relationships with your neighbors in the Middle East. Uh, they're certainly not also enlightened. And is there a security concern? And, and what... Um, uh, I, I guess, what's your plan for sort of bringing them on board, if, if, if any? In the UAE, we have two threats, and, and two threats only. Uh, the first one I just spoke to, which is the external and prevalent Iranian threat. But the second threat is an internal extremism threat. It's groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. It's groups like the Salafis, groups like Al-Qaeda, who kind of work from within the system and then wreak havoc on your country. Um, I think the UAE is definitely a big target. There are those who are disagree with me and they say, well, the UAE has never had a terrorist incident, then you must have made a deal with the devil. I, I, I can assure you that that's not been done, and I can assure you that there were actually operations targeting the UAE that were foiled in the nick of time. And to that, I, I, I give the credit to just good intelligence and security work and a good bit of good luck. I mean, it's a combination of both. But I have nothing that makes me believe that the UAE is exempt or immune from any of this extremism. We've just had a, a run of good luck. Security has always been 
a major priority for the UAE. And one of the reasons I think the UAE has had a good track record on security uh, is cooperation with our allies. Uh, we have one of the best military and security relationships with the United States of any, any country in our part of the world. But I think the other dynamic is our officials in the UAE, uh, particularly on the intelligence and security and military side, are extremely, extremely close. In many cases, the, uh, the, the leaders of these various organizations are actually brothers. And so they have a very informal relationship with each other. The interagency relationship, as you would categorize it, is probably one of the most effective I've ever seen. And I can tell you that after being in Washington for a year and a half, the interagency in Washington is, has, has much improvement to go through. So I think our, our security performance is, is a testament of all these things I just mentioned. And uh, knock on wood, we, we hope to maintain a, a flawless track record. Uh, how badly damaged were uh, our relations over the Dubai Port Authority and our fumbling mishandling of that, or were you charitable enough to understand our shallowness of our political decision-making? Out of the last 10 years that I worked on this relationship, I think that was, that was one of the biggest hurdles that we've gone, come across. Um, and I was in Abu Dhabi at the time, and, and people were asking me, why are we going through this? We thought we are friends. We thought we are you know, the Navy's most favorite port call. We thought, we thought we are their biggest trade partners. You know, there's, there are certain truths that, got, that went unnoticed during this crisis, and people were asking me, why are these not being factored in? The, the fact is, I think this was a purely internal domestic issue in the United States. This was Democrats and Republicans having a go at each other uh, at, at the UAE's expense, and it was what it was. But let's look on the positive side of what the Dubai Ports World Scandal created. It created an awareness of, for us, the UAE, that the United States does not know us, that the United States does not understand us. And because of that, we launched a very aggressive public diplomacy campaign, of which I am now a part of. This is part of the public diplomacy campaign. I'm here to speak to you today about what our countries do together. Uh, we also launched the US-UAE Business Council. Um, a, a, an organization that brings together the interests of various companies that have business interests in the UAE. All these mechanisms are designed to increase the awareness and the education level of your average person who does not know what we are and who we are and what we do. So I, I think there's a silver lining and we've come a long way since Dubai Ports World, but it was, it was a healthy wake-up call for us. A bit of a follow-up question, Your Excellency, to the uh, uh, recent one. Among your security concerns is the nearness of failed states such as uh, Somalia, uh, Yemen. Uh, is th how do you view that uh, so near to such a shining e uh, example of uh, business, intellectual, cultural, and, and success related freedom in general? Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think any failed state in our region is going to be infectious, and it will affect the rest of us. So we view it as in our national interest to go and help Pakistan, to go and help Yemen, to go and help Somalia. Each case is different and requires a different remedy. But if we, though the more fortunate countries in the region, like the United States, the UAE and the uh, Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, countries who have a bit of wealth, I think it is our responsibility to make sure countries do not enter, it in, enter into a failed state category. 
because if Yemen falls apart, Yemen is 26 million people, it's on the border with Saudi Arabia, it is very, very plausible that a takeover or an attack on Mecca or Medina takes place by Yemenis. That is dangerous to all of us. You know, you can't, you can't sit back and say, well, this isn't going to affect me because they're not on my border. That's absolutely not true. I think it is incumbent upon all of us to make sure Yemen has the resources it needs, the, resor the facilities it needs, cooperation it needs. I know the U.S. kind of see eye to eye on this with, the, with us on this particular issue, so we have convened a group of uh, friends of Yemen, as we like to call it, to help Yemen and make sure they get through this crisis. But we've done this also on Pakistan. We've done this on Palestine. We've done this with Lebanon. Any country that is in jeopardy risks affecting the entire region, so we must help it. I was wondering about the relationship between uh, Islam and the state in the UAE, because when we look around the Middle East, we see some very different models of the way that states deal with Islam mm -hmm. that is ranging from Turkey, that's rigorously secularist, uh, mm -hmm. all the way to Iran or Saudi Arabia that are self-proclaimed Islamist states, mm -hmm. where it's very difficult for non-Muslims to practice their religion mm -hmm. openly. And so my question is, how does the UAE approach that issue of the relationship between Islam and the state, and how does it handle uh, religious freedom and diversity, because you are such a diverse country mm -hmm. with a lot of expatriates, at the same time that you do have a, a Muslim heritage that is you know, an important part of your cultural legacy? I think uh, you, you gave two extremes on either side, Turkey and then Iran and Saudi Arabia on the other side, and I would say we are probably in the middle. I think the UAE has to, whether we like it or not, be liberal. We have to be tolerant. We have to be moderate because we have 80% of our population are expats. And 80% 80 I think compri comprising uh, close to 100 different nationalities. So we have literally every kind of religion, faith, background, creed that you can imagine. We can't be intolerant even if we wanted to be. So we have churches. We have, we actually help build churches in the UAE for people to practice. I remember sitting with a delegation of, uh, from the Mormon church where they came and requested land to build a church. We gave them the land and we actually gave them money to build a church. So the UAE, I would say, uh, is fairly tolerant. The only uh, red line we have is we, we do not permit proselytizing in the UAE. So you can't come preach and try to convert Muslims into turning into Christians. But you can practice your faith with the respect and freedom that you have anywhere you, would, you could in the world. So I, that is something I'm actually quite proud of. In fact, uh, a few years ago, we discovered the ruins of a church in the UAE, and it was estimated that this church is about 1,000 years old. So we actually we, we, uh, we refurbished it and we fixed it, and now it's a, uh, it's a historical site. Thank you, sir. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.